0: you're welcome to turn with me in your bibles um just one verse we're going to look at today so uh, if you don't it's okay um very few words but a lot to think about i was sharing with uh, a few people recently that um uh, after going through the book of esther <clears throat> you know on average i probably consult i don't know a number of resources say like about 8 or so uh, for a particular sermon series, um, but more ink is spilt on one beatitude than there is on entire chapters of other books of the Bible. And I can see why. It's, it's, it's very powerful. Um, and I can tell you that uh, after going through the one today, if, if, if you're not sort of struck to the heart of where do I really stand with Christ, I've done a really bad job today. Because it's 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 just it's powerful in and of itself. So I'm gonna to try to step out and let you hear it and see it for yourself, but at the same time, just, just pay very careful attention to the word that you hear today. Um it really is a litmus test, I think, of, of where where do I stand with Christ? It's very important that we get this. Here are the words, Matthew five four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's it. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see this day. We pray that you would give us not just understanding of the words themselves, but also a a, a deep-seated heart religion that we would know Christ, that we would love Him, uh, that we would understand what would cause someone to mourn in this way, that would cause someone to desire the comforts of heaven in, in this way. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Trivia question for you this morning. What's the most obvious sign to you that a newborn baby is alive? (laughs) There you go. Some people might say, well, the, the baby's moving, or they might check to see if the baby's breathing. It might take a little bit more to... You know get up in close and, and, and put a mirror up there. is the baby breathing? But the quickest way to tell is you hear that piercing cry when the baby first comes into this fallen world, he or she cries and cries a lot. In fact, uh, <laughs> within six weeks, apparently is the pinnacle of crying for a child. By the By the age of six weeks old, a child will cry on average two to three hours a day which helps you to know that child's alive. (laughs) It's still crying. Uh, After that, it eventually begins to uh, uh, dissipate and diminish over time to where it only cries uh, particular moments of pain and disappointment. But for the most part, if you're about to have a child, get ready for at least the first six weeks of a lot of crying because that is a sign of life. Now, of course, not every child cries when it first comes out of the womb. There are exceptions to the rule, but use it within a couple of seconds, even if the first breath isn't a cry. Before that child is reunited to his or her mother and is immediately seeking the comfort of their mother, immediately there'll be a cry. Unless for some reason they're lacking vocal cords, which every now and then happens. Uh, there's something wrong with the vocal cords, there's something wrong with the lungs that doesn't allow them to, to do that particular cry. We, we know that a child will cry. Now here's another question. What's the most obvious sign that a man, woman, or child has been born again? Ever given thought to that? I would venture to say to you that that child of God cries. Cries unto God because of their sin in a spiritual mourning that has never happened prior to the new birth. And I I want to elaborate on that today, that I do think that they are correlated, and there's a reason why God continues to use that analogy of being born again. There's a new life that causes us to long for a new kingdom, and a new Lord, and a new comforter, and all the things that come along with that. That miraculous new birth causes us to come alive in a way that we never were before, and we see that in a way through our crying. Now, it's a spiritual crying. It's a spiritual mourning, if you will, to distinguish between a cry of an unbeliever and the cry of a a believer, just as in the previous beatitude, if you remember, we talked about those who are poor in spirit, not just the poor in general that are blessed by God, but those who are particularly poor in spirit are blessed by God. In the same way, it's not merely those who cry, but those who mourn somehow in a spiritual manner that are blessed by God. If you think about it, all human beings made in the image of God are capable of crying for various reasons, particularly in the flesh. We generally will cry at the loss of a loved one. We'd be heartless if we didn't. Uh, We would cry over some bitter disappointment in life, some desperate financial reversal, some grievous affliction or pain that that doesn't seem to go away. We, We even cry over ball games at times. Some of us cry over elections. And tears and tears are shed because we didn't get the person that we wanted. Even pagans and Satanists cry at times of loss. If you think about it, only the most deranged sociopath or someone who doesn't have tear ducts is incapable of crying. Pretty much everyone else is. So crying in and of itself doesn't lead to blessing. And In fact, if you think about it, hell itself is called a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, and there's no blessings there at all. Clearly, there has to be some unique aspect of the mourning that's being referred to here. Additionally, if crying in and of itself was a sign of God's blessing, then every woman in this room would be at advantage Compared to the men, apparently, according to statistics, on average, within a period of a month, a woman cries five times. In that same period of time, a man cries less than one time. Maybe. Depending upon the circumstances. Believe me, I know. I've lived in a household with five women for quite some time. Quite a few tears are shed, and usually not from me. They are quite advantaged in that way. Of course, there's some benefits to crying in earthly manners. There, there's a, it's cathartic. It helps us to relieve our emotions in one way or another, and again, given the, the fact that women are more prone to cry, not, not crying, not all of them, but many of them are. I mean, it's just, a, it's just a fact, you know, that if a woman is pulled over by a police officer and she cries, she's not going to get that ticket. It's a blessing. It's an earthly blessing she's not going to get. It. I have gotten the ticket every time. Even on my birthday, I have gotten a speed ticket. I turned 30. I got a ticket. I told him it was my birthday. I don't care. I tried to force myself to cry. <laughs> doesn't work. I can't cry. It's not fair. Thankfully, God doesn't give us less advantages because of our gender, because we're not as prone to cry. No, it's a, it's a very particular spiritual type of mourning that he's referring to here. It's, it's not merely a crying over sin, uh, from the sense that we are sinners and acknowledging the fact that we're sinners, but there's more to it than that. That uh, I mean, think about it. Even an unbeliever can sense their sin and, and certainly cry over the consequences of their sin, but they're still missing something. Even Judas himself, right? Judas, the betrayer of, of Jesus Christ, acknowledged his sin. He confessed his sin and even tried to make amends for his sin by, throwing, by, by getting rid of the money that was given to him and trying to give it back to the temple and yet he could not cry in the right manner in a way that would be blessed by God. He was not a spiritual mourner, but only mourning in the flesh. Likewise, spiritual mourning is not merely over the consequences of sin or the accompanying miseries that often go along with sin. If you think about Esau, right? Esau cried after he lost the blessing to his brother Jacob. He cried after he had sold the the bowl of stew, if you will, to his brother. He lost his blessing, but he cried with bitter tears because of the consequences of sin. He did not cry over his sin. There's a big difference. In fact, if you think about it, uh, most movies today that have any what we might consider redemptive qualities are often written by unbelievers. They can fully enter into the estate of our sin and show us very clearly something of the miseries of sin and can help us empathize with those who are caught in slavery to sin. And, and, and you can shed many, many tears over these types of movies or even you know perhaps a television show or a book, something that's written by an unbeliever. They will help you to weep over the consequences of sin. And, and, and that can be quite good because it can help us to, to realize how bad the association of sin has for us. But you'll never see an unbeliever write any book or movie or anything else that will help them weep over sin itself. Only the consequences of sin. Only the miseries of sin. But there's still a sorrow that's not blessed by God. Second Corinthians 7, verse 10. Paul says this, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief only produces death. So even... If you're crying over the consequences of sin, you're crying over the miseries of our sin, or crying even over the misery we see in other people's lives, it's still not the type of mourning that's blessed by God. Not only that, but the average unbeliever tries to avoid crying and mourning at all costs. They don't see it as a blessing at all. They see it as something to be rid of if they can. They'd much rather be in the house of feasting than in the house of mourning, because it seems like it's a bad thing altogether. They feel that they're entitled to happiness, to the pursuit of happiness at all costs, even if that means they have to divorce their spouse to find it, even if that means that they have to abort their child to have it, even if that means that they have to change their gender in order to find that happiness, they cannot weep over their sin. Instead, they continue to cast off God's authority, challenging His rule at every front, Rejecting any standard of holiness and only seeking happiness apart from Him. They cannot weep over their sin. And so this beatitude challenges the view of the world altogether. Jesus is challenging sort of this worldly hedonism, this desire for pleasure and happiness at all costs to avoid any aspect of mourning. He's actually saying here that mourning is good. In fact, if you were to read it this way, it sounds as if He's saying, happier are those who are sad. Or happy are those who are unhappy. It almost seems like a paradox of what he's saying here. It seems like a contradiction in terms, but it's not. Even the Apostle Paul describes the Christian life in this way. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10. He says, we are those who are often sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Those two at the same time. Often sorrowful, always rejoicing. They're not contradictory. In fact, these two emotions, sadness and joy, are paired together regularly throughout Scripture. Psalm 30, verse 5, David says, weeping may tarry for the night, but what? Joy comes in the morning. Psalm 126, verse 5, those who sow in tears shall reap what? Shouts of joy. They shall reap with shouts of joy after sowing tears bitter tears. Isaiah 61 verse 3, the Lord promises to grant to the mourners in Zion a beautiful headdress to replace their ashes and the oil, and, and along with this oil of gladness instead of mourning. There's a promise of joy, a promise of happiness, a promise of, of God's blessing given to those who sow genuine tears of godly sorrow. Think of it, if you take the book of Psalms as an example, the book of Psalms is not just a book of singing, but it's also a book of prayer. It teaches us how we ought to be praying. And if you think about how many psalms are actually lamentations, laments, in all 150 psalms, 70% of them are laments that should tell us something about the ordinariness of weeping in the Christian life. It's not something that's rare, it's something that ought to be normal. In fact, we read earlier from Psalm 38, Brian read it for us. David is, is speaking of how he's overwhelmed in sorrow, feeling that his iniquities have gone over his head, that they were a heavy burden to his soul, and how he went about mourning all the day for them. He's, he's clearly describing agony of spirit that causes him to cry out to God. This is just one of many examples in, in the Psalms. In one occasion, Isaiah 22, verses 12 through 14, God actually is is, is calling for a day of weeping and mourning. In fact, our country at one time used to call for these types of days. A day of fasting and weeping. You don't see too many of those days being called anymore in our country. Weeping over sin. That was something expected. God himself had called for a day of weeping and mourning over Israel, but instead of doing that, He says, my people held a feast instead and said, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He's asking for them to rend their hearts and they refuse and they go feasting instead. That's our problem. We don't want to go to the house of mourning. We want to stay in the house of feasting. God is not a masochist. He doesn't enjoy for us to be in pain. He doesn't inflict pain on us for for kicks but rather He does it to call us to weep and mourn over our sin. Why? So that we might be brought further into the joy of heaven. It's only those who weep over earth that seek out the joy of heaven. It's only those who weep over sin that enjoy the grace of God. Even Christian circles, though, At times, the church has rejected this aspect of mourning. In fact, uh, one very prominent hymn in uh, in our day since the 19th century is, is touting that Christians now are happy all the day. It's just not true. They're not happy all the day. In fact, they ought not to be happy all the day in that sense, but they ought to go through a wide range of emotions, mourning being one of them. That because we've been saved by grace... That should enter, help us enter into more grace, but, but the, those who are against this concept would say, because God has given us grace, I don't have to worry about the law of God anymore. I don't have to worry about being sad anymore. I don't have to worry about offending a holy God anymore. I don't have to worry about whatever, because Christ has just promised me from now on, I'm just going to live a, a, an absolute wonderful life with grace and joy all the days of my life, and that, that's how it ought to be. There ought to be no wrestling, no struggling, no running, no fighting, none of those words that were given in Scripture to show that there's pain involved. Yet clearly, there's some aspect of mourning that's required in the Christian life, but many reject it. And so as a result of diminishing God's law, diminishing any aspect of holiness or mourning over sin, they also diminish any possibility for joy, true joy because they can't enter into the joys of heaven if they can't mourn over their sin. Of course, we don't like to cry. (laughs) We don't like to cry over our sins in that way. And I'll tell you this, that uh, those who are against this concept often say, well, you know, don't be legalistic in that sense. You know, Just because you cry, that's not going to save you. We're not saying that at all. In fact, we're far from it. We just sang last week, if you remember, in Rock of Ages. You remember the hymn? My tears could what? Forever flow. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. We're not saying that our tears give us any hope of salvation, but rather our tears show us that the work of salvation is at work within us. Now we have the mind of Christ. Now we have the heart of God. and Our tears are beginning to flow in line with the Holy Spirit. Just as a baby cries when entering the world, So the believer cries when entering into that spiritual realm because now the believer wants to be reunited with his comforter. In the same way the baby's longing to be reunited with its mother, we now cry for God, our comforter, to give us a comfort that only he can. For the first time, we hate our sin. For the first time we mourn over our sin, weep how we've offended a holy God, weep over the fact that we've crucified His Son, weep over the fact that we've grieved His Spirit. There's a true mourning that takes place. You remember the harlot that fell down at Jesus' feet, was weeping tears and wiping His feet with her hair, and the Pharisees just looking at her with disgust. He says, he who has been forgiven much does what? Loves much. And it's the tears that are often the sign of that love. She showed her love by her tears, by her mourning. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, there's a prophecy that's given of the day of Christ's coming. And in that prophecy, the Lord says this, I will pour out my spirit on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that when they look at me, on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. In other words, when someone really understands why Christ has come, they will mourn over their sins. They will mourn that they have crucified the Lord of glory, their Savior. But it's not just at the beginning of the Christian life that this takes place. All throughout the Christian life, this is happening. Jesus says this in the the present tense, not the past tense, not blessed are those who did mourn, but rather blessed are those who mourn. In fact, Luke will say blessed are those who mourn now, not later. But blessed are those who mourn. For those who are born again will continue to mourn over their sins against the holy God. Romans 7, listen to what Paul says. Clearly, Paul is a believer in this passage. He's not an unbeliever. Some have tried to say that he is. But as a mature believer, he's wrestling with his sins on a daily basis. And he says this at the end of this, I don't do what I want to do. I, 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 I do what I don't want to do. I, I, there's something wrong with me. And he says at the end, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? He so hates his sin. He so hates his estate, there's something desperately wrong with him that he cries out to God, Oh Lord, raise me up. Save me. Help me. Bring me to a higher understanding of the grace of God. As Christians grow closer to the Lord, they understand more of the law of God. The Holy Spirit brings greater conviction. Not just over our large sins, if you will, but even our lesser sins show us an even greater need for grace and forgiveness on a daily basis. When the believer's heart is softened by God, he begins to mourn over many transgressions, many omissions. So not just the things that we've done that we know that we ought not to do, but even the things that we leave out on a regular basis. We don't seek Him like we ought to, that there's something else that we want so much more than we want Him. We begin to mourn over that fact that there's something wrong with me that I don't love God like I ought to. Why do I love so many other things? Why am I so void of grace? Why am I so worldly in spirit? Why am I so in love with sin? Is something wrong with me. The more he's humbled by God, the more he begins to mourn even over his thoughts his impulses, his desires that no one else sees but himself. No one else knows but God. He begins to mourn over those things as well. Because he knows that even those things can lead to dishonoring God's name. Uh, He knows that he's going to have a break in fellowship because of the sin that he cherishes in his heart. Think about it as the Song of Solomon, if you remember when the The bride is separated from her husband for a time. She's crying out with tears and and asking those in the city, have you seen him whom my soul loves? The believer who knows he's had a break in fellowship with the Lord begins to say the same thing. Have you seen him? Where is my Lord? He begins to mourn for that lack of relationship that he wants new. that She wants new. She's missing it. Because that joy is now diminished because sin is being cherished. As long as sin is in the life of a believer and there will always be sin, there will always be some aspect of mourning that's needed over sin. Because sin diminishes our joy. The only way to reclaim it is to mourn over it, to hate it, and to seek out Christ in repentance and in tears. But as I said, there will always be some in the church that think that mourning is unnecessary, even legalistic. They would rather focus solely on grace, solely on the happiness of of the world that we ought to live. But think of it this way. Even Christ was identified by Isaiah as the man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. Now, if we're to live our life in pattern after Christ, And he's known as the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. How can we be something other than that? You remember the the hymn, Away in the Manger? I still laugh at it every time we sing it because it says that heretical verse, the babe, Jesus in the manger, no crying he makes. Of course he's crying. He's human, fully human. Not just God, but human. He's crying. I mean, even from the perspective of heaven alone, he's in the bliss of eternal riches. He leaves that to come to our place. Wouldn't you cry? He's crying. In fact, the other hymn, the one that's much better, theologically speaking, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, says this, He came to earth to taste our sadness. The problem is we're trying to get rid of that taste. We don't want to taste it. He has purposely come in order to taste it that He might show us what it means to mourn over our sin. By His incarnation, He not he not only knows our sadness, He shares in our sadness. That's why when even at the, the, the death of His friend Lazarus, he's, he's weeping. He's not weeping because He doesn't know that He's going to save him a few minutes later when He raises him from the grave. He's weeping because He knows That sin is an enemy that steals everything good, any aspect of joy from our lives, and leaves us broken, hopeless in every way. He's waiting for the day in which sin is completely gone. Death is completely destroyed. But in the meantime, he's living in our world, and he's weeping over sin and over its consequences. Later on in Luke chapter 19, we see Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives and looking down upon the city of Jerusalem and He's just weeping over their sin and over the judgment of God that's going to come upon them because they refuse to weep over their sin. They refuse to repent of their sin. The song that that Jacob sang earlier with the the music team up here, they're, they're, they're singing about how Jesus weeps for sinners in order that we might learn to weep over sin and shame ourselves. The question is asked, did Christ over sinners weep and yet our cheeks be dry? How is that possible? It may It never be. The Apostle Paul agrees after rebuking the Corinthians harshly for their sin, he says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9, that he rejoices that they're weeping. Who would say that? Why? I'm so happy that you're weeping. That's what Paul says. He says, not merely because you grieved, but because that you grieved into repenting. I'm so happy, I'm rejoicing that you're weeping. He says, you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss. He says, not the grief that leads to death, but you suffered a godly grief and he rejoices over them because of it. It's this type of grieving, this type of mourning that God promises a blessing. It's a good thing, he says. But this beatitude doesn't merely refer to mourning over our own sins. If you'll notice the trend here with the Apostle Paul and Jesus, it also signifies that we ought to be weeping over the sins of others. As Jesus was weeping over the sins of Jerusalem, we we see the psalmist weeping over the sins of Israel In Psalm 119, he says this, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Have you ever cried because you saw people not keeping God's law? You may think that's kind of crazy. (laughs) Why would you do that? Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 17, the prophet says this over Israel, My soul shall weep in secret places because of your pride. He says, I'm weeping Over your pride. My eyes shall weep sore and run down with tears because the Lord's flock will be carried away as captive. And then, of course, you have the whole Book of Lamentations written by that same weeping prophet who's weeping over Israel because she could not repent of her sins. She refused to humble herself before God. The New Testament's no different. The Apostle Paul, again, he uh, speaking to the Philippians, Philippians 3 verse 18, he says this, For many of whom I have often told you in the in the, the context of the church, many have I often told you and now even tell you with tears, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ and for them I weep because they will not repent of their sins. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 21, he, he shares how He's very concerned that still, uh, after all this has happened, he's coming uh, almost a year later, and he's concerned that when he comes, he's going to have to weep a lot because of all the sexual sin and the sensuality that they're continuing to practice in the midst of that church. He says, I don't want to come in anger. I don't want to come in tears. I'd like to come and, and give you a blessing, but I'm weeping because you refuse to repent. First Corinthians 5, he actually rebukes the church of Corinth saying this, You've allowed sexual immorality to flourish among you, even a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. And he says, and you're arrogant about it. You seek to defend yourself that that's okay. He says, when what you ought to do is mourn, you ought to grieve that this sin is allowed in your midst, and yet you don't. Indeed. We ought to weep over the sins of others just as we weep for ourselves for the same reason. And what's that reason? For the glory of God's name, for the zeal of God's house, that our sin and the sins of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ would not bring blasphemy to the name of God. Think of it this way. This aspect of mourning is in correlation with the Lord's prayer. What are we praying first in the Lord's prayer? Hallowed be thy name. If that's a prayer that you pray on a regular basis, that's your heart's desire that God's name would be hallowed, then does it not make sense that when His name is not hallowed, it bothers you? It disturbs you? It actually makes you sad because God's name is, is being maligned by others. Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4. God actually tells one of his servants, I think a spiritual servant in this case, to put a mark on all of those who have been weeping over the sins of Israel. To distinguish them from those who have been running rampant in their sin. And and he makes no distinguishing difference whether it's an old man, a young man, a maiden, or even a young child. He says, slay them in the midst of the streets, but put a mark on any of those that wept for the sins of Israel. And don't, put a, don't lay a hand upon them. He makes a distinguishing difference between those who are weeping over sin and those who are not. And that seems to be the same reason that Lot is saved from the city of Sodom. From the Sodom and Gomorrah, right? 2 Peter verse 2, chapter 2, verse 7 says this. The apostle tells us that, that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. That as he lived among them day after day, his soul was tormented over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, and his groaning led to tears. He's weeping over their sin. Now compare that to our day. When we see and hear lawless deeds taking place in our society today, how do we respond? How do we respond to that? Do we weep or do we have some other kind of emotion? I can tell you this, if you watch enough news at all, in the last 10 years especially, what is the emotional reaction that they're trying to get from you? It's all anger. Now, there's an appropriate time for anger. I'm not saying anger is always wrong. Even Jesus got angry in the temple courts when people were selling their wares in, in the house of worship. But the news can only make you angry. <laughs> It's all it does. And if that's what you're doing the majority of your time, you're just going to get more and more angry because they don't know how to weep over sin. Every now and then you'll see a reporter as they're uh, reporting on some particular horrendous crime. And and I've actually seen a, a reporter weep on air. But weeping for the consequences of sin. Weeping for the miseries of sin. But not weeping for sin, you see. If the majority of your day or even the best part of your day is given to watching the news, it's only going to make you angry. It doesn't lead you to weep. Only God's Word can do that. If you're not in God's Word, you'll never understand the mind of Christ. You'll never understand what He's saying here about weeping over sin. The whole country is angry, and yet not even the church oftentimes is weeping Maybe that's why the gospel isn't advancing. I mean, if you think about it, there's a a direct correlation between Christians weeping over their own sin that leads to us weeping over the sins of our nation and over our society. We we, we don't sense it. We don't feel it. Many people around us are on the road to hell, and and we're still angry. We're not weeping. I, I imagine most of you probably aren't familiar with the name David Brainerd. Um, very famous, uh, famous at least to me, <laughs> Presbyterian minister who later became a missionary to the natives in uh, Delaware, uh, one of the particular tribes of Indians in, in Delaware back in the early 1700s. It was his life that inspired the likes of William Carey, who went to India, and Adoniram Johnson, and even Jim Elliott. They quoted David Brainerd as sort of their model to follow. And uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, maybe you've heard that name, he was one of the leaders of the Great Awakening who uh, wrote a biography about David Brainerd and used his journals and explained his life in the midst of what he was writing about, what was going on in his heart. And uh, you know, it just so happens that we have that book in our library, right out here in the foyer. I encourage you, if you've never read it, it's definitely on one of my list of top ten books that you ought to read. Just for this reason alone, to understand what it looks like for a man to mourn over his sin. And for what it looks like for a man to mourn over the sins of others. I don't know of anyone else uh, who who comes anywhere close uh, to to his example. Listen, here's some of of his journal entries. October 18, 1740. He says, in my morning devotions... My soul was exceedingly melted and bitterly mourned over my exceeding sin and vileness. And he's talking about the the couple hours that he's in prayer and tears, mourning over his sin that he's not what he ought to be. Another entry says, My soul mourned the absence of my comforter exceedingly this morning. I could not find the comfort of the Spirit because of my sin because of my lack of repentance. Today I mourned over the body of death that is within me. It grieved me exceedingly that I could not pray to God. I could not praise Him with my heart full of divine and heavenly love. On another, He said, I mourn for my abuse of my dear Lord. I have treated Him that I have not lived more for God like I should. I mourn that I have made so little progress in grace. I mourn over my folly, over my idolatry. I mourn over the absence of God in my life. Now, upon reading these things, we think, well, he's just a really sad guy, just depressed. (laughs) And some people have said that. In fact, even even Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called uh, Religious Affections to distinguish between those who have fake emotions and those who have real ones. And he says, uh, of David Brainerd, who he admired greatly, he said, probably early on in his Christian life, there was a, a natural despondency that he felt, but the more he grew in his faith of Christ, more divine tears began to flow. That's why he wrote this biography, because he he said, I've never known a man who knew how to mourn over his sin like this man does. Upon reading his journal entries, you might think that uh, he's only given to sorrow, but that's not true at all. In fact, that's why I love the book so much, because now he also enters into great heights of joy. His sorrow leads to greater joy. One entry, he says this, my soul rejoiced with joy unspeakable. And I continued in this state of inward joy, peace, and astonishment till way after dark, until there was no sensible abatement of it. In other words, he's describing, I mean, it's almost like a a mystical thing to him, but it's not. He's entered into this experience where he has entered into the courts of heaven, but here on earth, and has known the love, the comfort, and joy of God. But it started with his tears. It started with his mourning another entry, says, I enjoyed much of the light of God's countenance today, most of the day, and my soul rested in God. I enjoyed great sweetness in communion with my dear Savior. On another one, he says, I enjoyed considerable sweetness in religion all throughout the winter. This is a man who's living in a tent outside in the winter. I, I enjoyed considerable sweetness in religion throughout the whole winter, he says. Now, most of us, probably our journal entries don't look like this. <laughs> More like, well, you know, pray for so-and-so, you know, blah, blah, blah. His desire, and if, if you get nothing out of this other than his desire is to know and to love Christ. Everything about his life, that's what he wants. That's what he pursues. And that, that spills over then into his love for the natives, for those in, in Delaware, and how he begins to mourn over their sin. And it leads... Him to tell them even more about the gospel of Christ and the joys of heaven. He says in one entry, He's pleading with the Lord for more compassion for their immortal souls, that He might be enabled to cry with a greater ardency for them, understanding that through the work of conversion, even though it's impossible with man, it's possible with God. He's, he's complaining that He doesn't mourn over them enough, because when He does begin to mourn, He becomes even more powerful in His preaching, more powerful in his prayers, more powerful in his conversations with him. This is what motivated all these other missionaries that have gone out over the years to tell people about the love of Christ. They've watched this guy. They've read his journal. And they said, well, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my heart that I don't feel this way? And so you'll see in his journal entries over and over again, him, him, him pleading with heaven, Lord, give me a heart that can break again. And that's a very important Point I think we have to draw out of this if basically this you can't make yourself cry. You're an actor, maybe you can try, right? You can shed a few tears or pretend to do something in that regard, but you can't make yourself mourn over sin. Our flesh just simply can't produce that. It's something that has to come from heaven. It's something that has to come from the grace of God. It's something that has to be worked into us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, again, Zechariah 12, verse 10, the Lord says this, I will pour out upon them a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, whom they have pierced, they'll mourn. Notice, God is promising to give that spirit of grace, that spirit of mourning, to those that when they can contemplate the cross of Christ, when they contemplate the sweetness and the joy of their Savior, they begin to mourn. But it has to come from heaven. We, we, we can't produce it in and of ourselves. So uh, if, if you're looking to be blessed by God in this particular way, you have to ask God for it. Because our hearts are simply too hard to receive it. We don't even understand it. And when I read some of these journal entries to you, it seems so alien to us because we're just not there. We, we, we've not even considered this as a blessing. Only God can make us hate our sin. Only God can make us love our Savior. So the only way we can do that, the only thing we can do is to avail ourselves of the means of grace through which God gives us this type of grace. In other words, if all you do is watch the news every day, you're never going to get this spirit of mourning. But if you read God's Word each day, He'll begin to give you the mind of Christ. Instead of just talking to others about all the things you're angry about, go to God in prayer and ask Him to break your heart. It's a means of grace. As you're reading God's Word, as you're praying, as you're spending time with Christians who have a similar heart, at least a similar need, and recognize their need, there's hope. And asking God to bring us these penitential tears, if you will. Uh, another means of growing in this type of godly sorrow is actually through hymn singing. It's interesting, uh, Rose and I this week started to go through, we're going through the whole hymn book, and we're rating all the hymns that we think every Christian should know. Sort of in in that sort of order. Uh, yeah, we're, we're judgmental, that's what we do. Um, it's interesting though, at least three of the hymns that I put in sort of a tier two category, I didn't think that they were good enough to be in the tier one. I then went and read them again. And I said to myself, I never paid attention to this hymn. I never paid attention when I was singing these words. I had no idea what I was missing. This, there's a reason why this is a good hymn. And I didn't get it because I wasn't, I wasn't worshiping with my heart. I was just singing the words and the tune was kind of catchy. And you're like, okay, that's great. But How many times when you're singing do you have to sort of step back and say, do I I know what I'm singing? Am I paying attention to what I'm singing? And let the Spirit work through that hymn to bring true conviction of sin. In, In these red hymn books that are before you, there are entire sections in the hymn book of hymns just on repentance. Hymns for repentance and hymns for confession of sin. And I, I tell you, there's a, they're a means of grace because they make you consider your sin. As you sing about your sin, you, you'd be surprised how much you start to hate your sin. No one sings happily, I'm such a sinner, yes indeed. No one says that. As you sing about your sin, sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings and gives him repentance. You see? But like David Brainerd, there's also another aspect. Just simply examining yourself on a regular basis. He would examine his heart. Where do I stand with God? There was a, a regular practice amongst the Puritans. They would actually keep what was called a sin log. Have you ever kept a sin log? Uh, I know Ellen, my wife, when she uh, was a dietitian, she would make people keep a food log. And in the food log, they had to write down everything that they ate so they could see what it was that was causing them to overeat, like I have a tendency to. But I don't know if many people keep what would be referred to as a sin log. Just writing down. It's called a sin catalog. They would write down all the sins that they knew that they had committed that day. Why would they do that? (laughs) They're just dark, spirited people. They did it because they wanted to learn to mourn over their sins. And not just to casually look over them and say, well, everybody sins. They wrote down their sins so that they could plead to God in prayer and say, Lord, break my heart over these sins, that I would hate these sins and not commit them anymore. There's something about examination, meditation. I, it's funny, I've read some books uh, or actually I hadn't read this one. It was a one I saw a title a few years ago. It was called How to Have a Five-Minute Devotion. <laughs> and, and sometimes you may only have five minutes, I get that, but If that's your goal is a five-minute devotion with God, your, your heart's never going to break over your sin. You have to linger in God's presence. We linger watching the news. But do you linger in your time with God? Do you linger listening to the words again and again and praying to God, what's wrong with my heart? Help me. Break my heart that I might know you and know the joy of heaven. If I don't do that, I will never experience the The comfort that is promised to those who mourn, because I'm not mourning. I won't know that heavenly comfort. But again, as I said, they're always antagonists, uh, even in Puritan days. uh, The opposite of the Puritan was what we refer to as the antinomian. They were against God's law, because God has given us grace. You don't ever focus on law. You don't ever focus on sin. You never even mention sin, because now you're a saved person. But the whole point of this passage, just like with the poverty of spirit, he wants you to see that you're poor in spirit. He wants you to acknowledge that you're poor in spirit. <laughs> and he wants you to look for the riches of heaven. In the same way, he wants you to be able to acknowledge there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with my heart. It's not soft. It's quick to sin and quick to forget that I sinned. And so Jesus is trying to point them to something greater, something that would lead them to true joy. It only comes through a broken heart. That's where that blessing begins to flow, just like the helpless child who cries to be returned to its mother. So our heart should cry to return to our Maker, to our Savior, to our Lord. So the Beatitudes given to us that we might examine our hearts to see if there's any spiritual life within us. Where is my heart? There's always some in the church who'll go through the motions. Those who have never wrestled with their sins. Never even questioned their salvation. They at one time walked an aisle. They prayed a prayer, I'm saved. But they've never looked at the fruit of that decision. They've never looked to see, am I beginning to mourn in any way over my sin? Am I beginning to long for the things of heaven? Do Do I want to spend time with God? If not, there's something wrong with me. If not, then I'd say that the person's more of a spiritual stillborn, rather than a spiritual newborn in Christ. They dead on arrival. They made a profession of faith, but it's not real. It's not realistic. In that case, the person who has that ought to admit their hypocrisy to God. I've been living for years saying that I'm a Christian, saying that I know Christ when I don't. Admit that to God. Admit it to Him today. Lord, I'm just playing games. I don't know what the pastor's talking about here. I've never experienced anything like that. Confess your sin to God. He'll draw near to you. Ask Him to break your heart that you've been born over your sin. There are others here who, who have never really been part of the church, have never really understood anything about their sin, and I'm I'm trying to explain some of the basics of what sin is and what it does to us, but until that person hears and understands, if you've understood a little bit today and you know that there's something wrong with you, cry out to God. Confess your sins unto Him that you've rebelled against a holy God who always does good. And He's promised to draw near to you. Perhaps you're one of those who have Known at one time what it was like to mourn over your sins, but you've forgotten it over time. You you remember crying over your sin early on in your Christian life, but somehow over time you've been hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Even now you don't feel any sense of love for Christ. Admit that to Him. God loves honesty. (laughs) Tell Him, I, I, I... I don't love you. I wish I did, but I don't. I'm incapable of loving you. I love my idols instead. I I love the world. I don't love you. Lord, break my heart. Because I'm missing out on the joy of heaven. I'm missing out on that sweet fellowship that's promised to us who mourn. Break my heart, O oh Lord. And restore to me what? The joy of my salvation. Notice the context of that passage is in the psalm, the penitential psalm. It's only after the heart is broken and the heart mourns. Finally, he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. The non-repentant person isn't even desiring the joy of it. He's praying for anything but that. But the person who knows what it is to mourn over their sin, longs for the joy of heaven. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us. We are spiritual beggars. We're we're spiritual lepers. There's nothing in us that would attract you to us. We're dead on arrival. Our wounds are festering. There's something that continues to stink from our confession of faith. We are not what we ought to be. Lord, I pray that you would bring true repentance, a gift from heaven, just as you bring faith as a gift, Lord, bring repentance as a gift, Lord, bring brokenheartedness as a spiritual grace from heaven that seems to be so lacking in this day and age, Lord, bring it to my heart, bring it to the hearts of your people, Lord, help us to mourn over our sins, Lord, help us to mourn over every sin that brings your name into disparagement. Hallowed be Your name. Teach us a love for the lost. Help us to break our hearts over theirs.